0: Welcome back. This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, Taylor Lane, a research fellow with CLCT. Today's program is one in a series of episodes where we will grapple with the way that smart cities and smart city technology interact with the law. In particular, today's big question is, how do smart cities bring up challenges within constitutional law? and specifically for today, the First Amendment. Our guest today is Alex Pratt, another research fellow with CLCT. Hi, Alex. Hey, Taylor. So, Alex, you've been sort of spearheading these constitutional law episodes. Maybe you can tell us a bit about what we're talking about generally. (laughs) Like, what constitutional law issues do smart cities implicate?
1: Well, we feel that smart cities implicate all sorts of constitutional issues, but... due to time constraints, we're only going to focus on a couple for these podcasts. So today, we're going to talk about the First Amendment, specifically the right to freedom of speech, right to petition, and right to assemble or right to association. There will also be a second part to this podcast, and in that second part, we're going to talk about the Fourth Amendment in terms of unreasonable search and seizure, as well as the third-party doctrine, and we'll also be talking about the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause.
0: Okay, so before we keep going... Could you just remind our listeners about what the First Amendment actually says?
1: Sure. Uh, the text of the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So to break that down, what we're really talking about here are five freedoms, One, freedom of religion, two, freedom of speech, three, freedom of the press, four, freedom to assemble, and five, the freedom to petition. Now, the last two are subject to some debate as to whether the way they are written is meant to lump them together. But for now, we will just consider them two separate enumerated rights. We won't be able to delve into all of these super deeply, but they are all implicated in some way by the proliferation of smart cities. And just to make one point very clear here at the top, uh, these are rights you have against government action, not private action. These are things the government cannot restrict.
0: Got it. So before we get into the legal substance here, I have to ask, what is it about smart cities that made you think about the First Amendment?
1: Well, what prompted this look into the First Amendment specifically and smart cities is the idea of how smart cities will make decisions, specifically and how smart cities use their public and uh, private aspects. Now, what do you mean by that, public versus private aspects? Well, when we say the word smart cities, I think a lot of people would think like the city of the future, like city from the Jetsons or something like that. Um, Maybe that's what will happen when a smart city is built from the ground up, but that's not the reality of what we're seeing right now. It's better right now to describe a smart city as an interaction between public government and private companies. What I mean by that is like where some government services are integrated into the Internet um, and where the relationship between the private individual and the state can take place through traditional means as well as digital data transfer and Internet platforms like Facebook. A smart city may rely on sensors in privately owned technology or private websites to collect data on its citizens and share that data with the government to make policy and economic decisions. It's a blurring of the public and the private. Okay, so how does that tie into the First Amendment? Well, the constitutional relevance of that public-private blur that we're first concerned with is the First Amendment right to freedom of speech. Now, traditionally, we know how this is and isn't regulated by the state. Uh, For example, the government can regulate the time, place, and manner of speech, and the government can regulate certain categories of speech because they are considered to be outside of First Amendment protection, such as um, obscenity. We don't consider obscenity to have First Amendment protection so the government can regulate it. But on the flip side, we also know that the government cannot restrict speech based on viewpoint. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. But to bring it back to smart cities, what we're interested in is whether the blurring of that public and the private shifts who can and cannot regulate speech.
0: Now, what are we talking about when we say blurring? What does this look like in the smart city context?
1: Okay, um, well, before we get too far down the road here, I do want to mention that this blurring I'm talking about is unintentional. A smart city isn't necessarily trying to move the line of what's public and what's private. It's mostly doing this unintentionally through decisions based on efficiency and limited government resources. A smart city will rely on private sensors and private companies to connect with citizens and to collect data on citizens because it's just more efficient that way. That's something that these private companies already do. The government doesn't have to expend unnecessary funds, learn a whole new subject, you know, etc., The default position of the progression of a smart city, you know, as a city integrates more private technology, i.e. becomes quote-unquote smarter, is that it moves the two positions of the public and the private closer and closer together over time.
0: That makes sense. Can you give us an example of this kind of blurring? Yeah,
1: that would make it a little more clear. Okay, so imagine a small city, let's say it has like 15,000 residents, and uh, let's, assume the local government uses a social media platform like Facebook to connect and communicate with those residents. Or let's assume that the mayor of this small city uses his personal uh, Facebook page to communicate official announcements to citizens. What we're asking is at what point does this platform, Facebook, a privately controlled entity that here is being used by the government for its official business. It's like it's being used as a public government announcement board At what point does that public and private line get so blurred that the private company needs to worry about constitutional violations, specifically here, First Amendment violations?
0: Now, I feel like I've heard something about this in the
1: news. Uh, Yeah, the idea of Facebook as a public forum. Yeah, that's exactly it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, that idea has been in the news recently. But discussions of the internet in general as a public forum has actually been around in academic circles since the 90s. It's only recently gained attention outside of those circles.
0: Now, to clarify for our listeners, Mm -hmm. what is a public forum, at least in terms of the First Amendment? Um,
1: A public forum is a place that has a long-standing tradition of being used for and is historically associated with all free expression that is protected under the First Amendment. So... um, Streets, parks, uh, sidewalks, they're considered open to public discourse by tradition and are so designated as traditional public forums. So how does a public
0: forum come come about? Like, how does it come to exist?
1: Okay, Uh, well, the government creates a designated public forum when it intentionally opens a non-traditional forum for public discourse. The two key points of that are that these places are created by the government, not private entities, and that it must do so intentionally. Now, in terms of free speech, governments can't restrict the use of public forums based on the content of the speech expressed by the user. The government can't say that you're not allowed to speak in a public forum because we don't like your message. That would be viewpoint discrimination. To legitimately restrict speech in that way, the government restriction would have to pass strict scrutiny to do so. But the government can restrict speech in public forums as to the time, place, and manner of speech. And what do those restrictions look like? Okay, well, first and most importantly, those restrictions are content neutral. That means the government should not be trying to restrict the speech solely because of what it is, what message it's trying to convey. So, for example, a city can't say that we're not going to allow a gay pride parade because we don't like the message it sends but the city can say that the Gay Pride Parade may only go down certain streets so that traffic isn't affected too much. Now, to survive a First Amendment constitutional challenge, any restriction has to satisfy a three-pronged test outlined by the Supreme Court in a case called Ward v. Rock Against Racism. In that case, the city required sponsors of park band shell concerts to use sound equipment and a sound technician provided by the city in order to avoid noise complaints by surrounding residents. Basically, they were trying to limit the uh, volume of the noise from these concerts. The plaintiffs had previously sponsored annual concerts in the park using their own equipment and technicians and felt that this was a violation of their First Amendment rights because it might limit the reach of their message. The Supreme Court held that the guideline was valid because it met the three-pronged test. First, as I mentioned, the regulation must be content-neutral. This guideline was content neutral because the city's desire to control noise had nothing to do with the content of the speech. There was even a provision in the guideline that forbade city officials from purposely selecting inadequate sound systems or varying volume based on the message. It applied to everyone. Second, the regulation must be narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest. Now, what that means is that the regulation should only impose necessary restrictions to serve a certain meaningful purpose. Here, the guideline was not unnecessarily restrictive. It had no material impact on any performer's artistic control, and its meaningful purpose was to insulate resonance from unwanted noise. Now, third, the regulation must leave open ample alternative channels for communicating the speaker's message. The basic test for this prong is uh, whether the speaker is afforded a forum that is accessible and where the intended audience is expected to pass. This guideline didn't prevent the group from performing in the park and provided another means through which they could broadcast their message. As it turns out, the city actually did have a decrease in the number of noise complaints from surrounding residents, and there were no complaints about sound quality from concertgoers in the park. In theory, the guideline did exactly what it was meant to do. It's a pretty good example of a regulation that still protects free speech rights while also meeting a municipal goal. Okay, so tying this back to smart cities, like get back there. Okay, our question is, as the line between the private and the public gets more and more blurred over time, is there a point at which the private companies become a public forum and then are subject to the same limitation vis-a-vis speech restrictions as the government? You know, is there a point at which the private company would have to pass that 3 prong test to restrain speech on its platform?
0: Now, where do we stand now on this question?
1: Okay, uh, right now, we're at the same place we have always been since the drafting of the Constitution back at the dawn of the Republic. What I mean is private entities are not beholden to constitutional guarantees. Basically, social media remains private space. Uh, Plus, not to get too far off topic, but I want to take a tiny detour, Uh, these online service providers are protected from civil liability by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And for our listeners, what's that? Okay, Section 230 is basically a liability shield for internet companies. Usually when someone commits a tort, uh, okay, let's say libel or slander against you here in the physical world. Uh, Let's say somebody went around town just putting up horrible flyers about you saying that you know you're awful that you know you commit all sorts of fraud that you destroy public property whatever now you find that person and you can sue him for defamation but on the internet it's a lot harder to find the person who harmed you it's almost impossible to track down the actual human being behind the screen name so then you think that you could sue the site that someone used to harm you say you know facebook but section 230 shields those websites from those kinds of suits They can't be sued for what people do on their platforms. So that doesn't seem ideal at all. No, no, it's really not. And the thing is, that wasn't the intent of the law at all. Now, contrary to what many people say or have heard, uh, the law, Section 230 and the Communications Decency Act, they were never meant to force sites to be politically neutral. That's not in the text of the statute, and that wasn't the legislative intent behind the law. Like the name of the law suggests, the Communications Decency Act, the law was actually intended to restrict the growth of pornography on the Internet. It was intended to give a safe harbor to sites that actively monitored their platforms for pornography. So if they were monitoring the site and porn just happened to get up there because they just didn't have the time to check everything, they would be fine. They couldn't actually be sued for that. But because of certain case holdings and the fact that parts of the law were struck down, what's left is Section 230 and that liability shield. So can we fix this problem? Yeah, that's not something I have the answer to, um, (laughs) but some people think we can. To fix Section 230, you would need to walk a really fine line between not discouraging innovation while encouraging platforms to actively monitor their sites So if anyone is interested, Danielle Citron and Ben Wittes have a really interesting proposal that would condition immunity on reasonable content moderation. Basically, return the law to the Good Samaritan provision that it was intended to be in the first place. Great. We
0: will provide a link on the Exhibit AI podcast page. Now, getting back to where we stand on constitutional obligations of private
1: entities. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. So uh we're still at a place where it's only the government that is obligated to abide by those constitutional restrictions. Private entities are free to regulate speech on their platforms however they'd like. Okay, for example, in late February, the Ninth Circuit rejected the argument by Prager University that YouTube was a public forum.
0: Now for our listeners, what is Prager University?
1: Prager University or Prager U as it's sometimes called is a non-profit organization that creates videos on various political and economic topics from a politically conservative perspective. Now, it's not an actual university. It doesn't hold classes or grant diplomas. The case we're talking about resulted when uh, PragerU filed a federal lawsuit against Google because Google owns YouTube, claiming that some of its videos on YouTube were unfairly demonetized or flagged so that they could be only be viewed with restrictive mode filtering. Now, restrictive mode filtering limits views on uh, videos based on certain characteristics, including the age of the viewer. Prager claimed that Google's actions violated the First Amendment, and they asserted that YouTube was a public forum. Now, like I said, that argument was shot down. The court found that YouTube is not a public forum in that case. But the thing is, that case doesn't answer our overall question things are actually a bit murky and may change in the future. In what way do you think? Well, a few years ago, when President Trump began blocking Twitter users who opposed his views from his Twitter account, several of them filed suit. Though generally, Twitter is not considered a public forum. In this case, the court said that the president made it so. His was not a private, personal account completely independent of the presidency. He uses the account to take actions that can only be taken by the president as the president. Because he chose such a public platform, he could not selectively exclude those whose views he disagreed with. The federal court ruled, quote, the First Amendment does not permit a public official who utilizes a social media account for all manner of official purposes to exclude persons from an otherwise open online dialogue because they express views with which the official disagrees, end quote. And there was a 2017 Supreme Court case called Packingham v. North Carolina. There, the court looked at a North Carolina law which said that registered sex offenders were barred from accessing various websites. For example, uh, Twitter and Facebook. Because minors are known to be active and have accounts on those sites. And that the offenders could not access those sites, regardless of whether or not the actual offender had directly interacted with a minor. The court held that that law violated the First Amendment. But why? I feel like that's the type of law we would want in place, right? Well, they said the law failed under strict scrutiny.
0: Now, it's been a while since I've taken con law. Maybe you can remind me and our listeners as to what strict scrutiny is.
1: Yeah. So the Supreme Court has different ways of approaching cases called standards of judicial review. The highest level of judicial review is called strict scrutiny. The court uses this type of review when a case involves fundamental rights, uh, the right to vote, the right to raise your child as you see fit, the right to freedom of speech. Once the court determines that strict scrutiny is called for, the law is presumed unconstitutional, and the government must then show why it is not. Now, the government can do so by showing that the policy is necessary to achieve a compelling state interest and that the legislation is narrowly tailored to achieve the intended result. Okay,
0: I remember this now. So (laughs) how was strict scrutiny applied in Packingham?
1: Okay, here the court said that while North Carolina had an interest in protecting minors, the law burdened way more speech than was necessary. The law restricted access to all sorts of websites, which the court deemed to be too broad. Justice Kennedy wrote that, quote, a fundamental principle of the First Amendment is that all persons have access to places where they can speak and listen, and then, after reflection, speak and listen once more. He continued by saying that, quote, By prohibiting sex offenders from using those websites, North Carolina, with one broad stroke, bars access to what, for many, are the principal sources for knowing curtain events, checking ads for employment, speaking and listening in the modern public square, and otherwise exploring the vast realms of human thought and knowledge. Now, just take a note here that a huge variety of sites are being equated to a public forum. And I think we know that not all websites out there have the characteristics of a public forum, you know, the traditional use of open discussion. And it is really important that the Supreme Court did not hold that the Internet is a public forum.
0: But... It seems that despite that express holding, it Mm -hmm. actually sounds like they're hinting that they might hold the internet to be a public forum in the future. So how does this question get
1: murky, as you said earlier? Okay, so then there's this other case. It's from 2019. It's called Manhattan Community Access Corp versus Halleck. There, the court held that private operators of public access channels are not state actors, and so they are not subject to constitutional liability. Now, public access channels, for those who are, aren't aware, they're where cable networks set aside certain channels for non-commercial mass media, basically where the general public can create and broadcast their own shows. Um, for those of you who remember Wayne's World, that's basically what the first uh, movie was about, you know, them going from public access to an actual channel. Right. The court looked at whether companies that ran these public access channels were state actors or private entities. Now, under established doctrine, a private entity may qualify as a state actor if it exercises, quote, powers traditionally exclusively reserved to the state. But the court said that admittedly very few functions fall into that category. Operating public access channels on a cable system is not a power traditionally exclusively reserved to the state. Now, that ruling seems oddly specific.
0: Mm -hmm. So how does that fit in with the use of social media platforms?
1: Well, see, I think that this case is very easily analogized to the Internet, where operating a social media platform is also not a power traditionally exclusively reserved to the state. In Manhattan Community Access, the respondents also tried to argue that operating public access channels was too narrow of a characterization for the activity And that the activity, you know, what was actually going on, was providing a traditional public forum, and the court rejected that idea. They said that the provision of a forum for speech does not automatically make the provider a state actor, and I think that's really important when talking about private Internet companies. So between those two cases, Packingham and Manhattan Community Access, and considering the recent holdings banning public officials from blocking citizens on Twitter— i just say that private platforms can still restrict speech all they want, but the future is unclear. And as technology changes and becomes more integrated into the public function, we may need to revisit this question.
0: So just to summarize for our listeners, all of this boils down to a blurring of public and private spheres. As government actors use technology developed by private companies in the smart city context, there are major concerns that private entities may have to abide by constitutional guarantees, and that our traditional free speech doctrines will not be enough to properly evaluate potential violations of free speech rights. Did I miss anything, Alex? Nope, I think you got it. Great. So shifting gears a bit, the First Amendment also gives people the right to petition the government Mm -hmm. for a redress of grievances. How do we think the right to petition is implicated by smart cities?
1: Well, for one, smart city technology could enable a new level of ostensible political connectivity for citizens. So much more data will be created and transmitted to the government for policymaking, potentially giving people a much bigger voice in the political process. But even in cases where citizens produce digital data specifically for policymaking purposes— and communicate it directly to the government authority through a designated platform, they hardly have an opportunity to express their views about the policy issues at stake, let alone engage in a reasoned discussion about them. Likely, the government will just take that data and make policy decisions without creating a forum for discussion. In that way, while citizens will be providing a lot more information to their government, participation will likely be passive. Their tech just automatically transmitting the data to the government.
0: Is there really a problem with this, though? How could there be any more accurate information than statistical and empirical data? Wouldn't people want decisions to be made based on what's actually happening?
1: Uh, yes and no, right? Uh, OK, um, of course, we want the government decision-making to reflect reality. But we know that everyone's reality is a little bit different. and. What this doesn't account for is the aspirational goals of the people. They may not come out in droves to a political protest at City Hall about local taxes in the middle of a workday, but that doesn't mean they don't have an opinion as to how the government chooses tax rates or how taxpayer money is used. There's also a danger that we create a negative feedback loop, that the data being collected reflects the current state of the law, reinforcing realities that the citizenry may not support. Decisions being made based on this data will further entrench those realities, making it difficult to change city policies as social political goals change. It's very cyclical. This actually all comes back to speech, and in this case, the right to petition. Even if some expressive actions or associations may be considered a form of speech, what we don't get in this scenario is a chance for actual spoken discourse. Without this Governmental decision-making becomes opaque. Speech may not be suppressed in the way we think, but it is possible that speech is chilled because people don't realize that decisions are being made without real dialogue or debate. So the concern here is
0: that the government's
1: use of data
0: in smart cities would effectively usurp our ability to engage in political discourse and meaningful decision-making at the local level.
1: Are there any other rights that are similarly threatened by the rise of smart cities? Absolutely. I think it's super important for us to mention the right to association here. Now, in terms of the right to association, we think that there are three situations where the nature of a smart city could implicate this right. And to clarify before we start, what we're talking about here is different than the right to association found in Lawrence v. Texas or in Obergefell. That covers the right to an intimate human relationship. That right comes from the word liberty in the 14th Amendment. Here, we're talking about the right to associate with other people to further expression, a right guaranteed by the First Amendment. That's the right to assemble.
0: Got it. So what are these three situations you just mentioned where smart cities could implicate this right?
1: The three situations I think are of interest here are, one, the government punishing you for your membership in a group, thus violating your freedom to associate with that group. Two, compelling a group to disclose their membership by way of technology and three, the violation of your right not to associate. Basically, the government using all the aggregate data it receives to lump together people who are not part of the group.
0: So considering the first situation you mentioned, that the government might punish you for your membership in a group, how would this materialize in a smart city?
1: Well, in a smart city context, the government can use all the aggregate data it has on you to figure out if you are a member of a certain group. Even with depersonalized data, it's relatively easy to link a particular person to that depersonalized data. For example, uh, when Netflix released data on favorite movies, they said they depersonalized it by only releasing the zip code of the watcher. But researchers were very quickly able to determine the individuals tied to that data. And just from movie watching and zip code, So, considering all the information that a smart city could have on you, it would be very easy for them to cross-reference that data and determine which individuals are all members of the same group. And then it would be easy for them to deny you services. And complicating this matter would be the fact that a data-driven organization, it's kind of a black box. If you were denied services, it may be hard for you to tell why you were denied services meaning that it would be hard for you to prove that it was a violation of your First Amendment right. Just as a note, the way the government may punish membership is only if it proves that a person is actively affiliated with a group, that the person knows of the group's illegal objectives, and that the person joins the group with the specific intent to further those objectives. Um, Say, for example, someone who joins a group threatening to overthrow the government. Okay, got it. Now,
0: What about this second situation? How would a government compel a group to disclose their membership in a smart city context?
1: Okay, um, you'd see the same kind of pressure from the last example, a denial of services and a difficult time showing that it was for an illegitimate reason. But this time, it would be the government would be doing it to pressure a group to disclose its membership. And due to how hard it would be for the group to prove that the denial was for an illegitimate reason, the government action could count as compulsion. And that would be a violation of the First Amendment because it's a violation of the First Amendment right to assemble to compel a group to disclose its membership. The government can only do that if it meets strict scrutiny. And that's because we're concerned that disclosure of membership may chill association.
0: Wow. Okay, so how about this third situation where the government violates your right not to associate? We would normally interpret The First Amendment right to associate is just the right to associate with whomever Mm -hmm. we want. So how does the government's interference with a person's ability to avoid associations through smart city technology present a First Amendment concern?
1: Here, we're actually concerned with a violation of a group's right, not an individual's right as in the other two examples. What we're talking about here would be a violation of a group's right to associate, basically where a group is being forced to associate with those it doesn't want to. This falls under the freedom to associate because that freedom includes the right not to associate. And that's because forced association may impair the right of the original members of the group to express their views. This could happen in a smart city where incorrect analysis of data means that the government lumps some people into a group that does not want those individuals to be part of the group You could see that especially being a problem where a group now has to share resources with those it doesn't want to associate with. And again, we go back to the black box problem. It would be hard for the group to show exactly why this was happening, that it was illegitimate, and then get it fixed.
0: So to kind of sum this up, this Mm -hmm. right is implicated on the personal and aggregate levels because it could either A, discourage people from associating with certain groups, or B, categorize people in ways that rob them of their associational freedoms. Exactly. Man, that is certainly troubling. Um, we definitely have a lot to think about now, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about these issues with us. Of course, this was great. And a huge thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, where you can hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more content from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and our website which are all linked in the description of this episode last but not least this podcast is made possible through a generous grant provided by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation which is funded by Cisco Systems Incorporated we sincerely appreciate their continued support of our independent research efforts thanks again for listening until next time this is Exhibit AI signing off